Our scripture lesson tonight comes from Paul's letter to the early church in Ephesus, uh, which is now uh, just outside of Kusadasa, Turkey. That's where it would be today. Uh, You can go there. I'll show you some photos here in just a minute. Um, But let's hear what Paul writes to this early church. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up, as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. It doesn't matter what you say or how you say it, somebody's going to take offense. I find more and more often that every time I stand up here on the pulpit or the stage, it gets more and more difficult not to offend someone, particularly in the political arena. You lean a little bit left and you get offended all the people on the right. You lean a little right, all the people on the left get offended. You get in the middle and they think you're wishy-washy. It's brutal trying not to offend folks. And so there is this this sort of cultural game of being offended. It's, it's really almost in vogue um, that somehow you can be upset. But, but I want to offer a way that we can be different from the world. You see, there's something powerful and incredibly compelling about someone who simply refuses to be offended. I want you to think about that. I want to give you a vision for that, that there's something powerful and incredibly winsome and compelling and beautiful about someone who simply refuses to be offended. It doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter um, what people do. We're simply going to be people of love and forgiveness and grace. There's something powerful and incredibly compelling and beautiful about someone who simply refuses to be offended. Is that you? Could that be you? Could you see yourself as someone who goes through life in peace and enjoy and simply refuses to be offended? If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take them out. We're going to look in the month of May of what it looks like to be unoffendable. Now, I know there are probably going to be some mothers over this weekend who are going to be offended that I didn't do a Mother's Day sermon. Right? They're like, hey, it's Mother's Day. You're blanking us on Mother's Day. Don't be offended. Hopefully we can get, get over that. So as a way of introduction... Uh, If you look up what it is to be offended, to be offended is to judge another's action as moral false step. Now, now see, that's a problem right there because to be offended means that you're judging someone else. From the very get-go, the moment that you start to get angry, the moment that you start to be offended about someone else, about their business, you're judging them. And you know that already you're in deep weeds. So to be offended is to judge another person's action as a moral false step. And, and the opposite of that, or the antonym to that, would be uh, to please. And so wouldn't it be great, instead of people who are offended, uh, we would be people who are pleased. We would be pleasing people. Now, one of the greatest compliments um, that we received as a church came about three years ago at Walmart. Chantel was checking out. It was about Bible school time. We had had a lot of people running through going to Walmart to buy stuff to get ready for Bible school. And one of the checkers stopped her, and she said, 
wait, wait, wait. She had an Acts 2 shirt on. She goes, do you go to that church? And of course, for us, as, as the people who founded the church, we're like, oh, no. You know, like, what, what's she going to say? And, and she said, there's just something about the people who wear those Acts 2 shirts. They're some of the kindest, nicest people we've ever met. That, we never have a problem when we check out. No one ever yells at us or has a, this or that. They're just always so kind. You know, I really like those Acts 2 people. I really like that. And I was like, wow, that, that's where we want to be headed. And, and I, would, I would love it if in all the arenas of our lives, that's how people described us. Those, those Acts 2 people, those people that wear those Acts 2 shirts, those people that love kids and serve others around the world, those people... We want to be around them. These are pleasing people. You see, when Paul writes to the early church in Ephesus, um, people were quite concerned and would talk openly in, in open-air forums about virtues and vices. And you know what the worst vice of all is, don't you? Advice. So we want to give it out sparingly um, and very carefully. And, and so when Paul would talk, he would talk about the virtues, about what it is to be uh, virtuous, what it is to have a Christian character and, and Christian character looks like this, things that Jesus modeled himself, things like humility or gentleness, patience, love, and your blank there is peace, that we're to be people of peace and humility and gentleness and patience. And you see, to hold an offense or to take offense is actually the opposite of living like Christ. Uh, it is to damage and destroy community, relationships, virtue itself, and life. And so some of the things that are so painful in life are that, that when we don't give up an offense, when we hold on to anger, when we hold on to that brokenness, it actually breaks down the fabric of the world itself, of families and neighborhoods and communities and societies and churches and nations and worlds. And so you might say, well, okay, sure. Paul was writing back then, and you know, it was a lot easier then because the world was much simpler, and you know, he's writing to Christian people or to uh, Jews. I want to show you Ephesus. You can go there today, back in November, uh, when I was uh, checking on the refugee situation in Turkey and Syria uh, with Michael. Um, we went to uh, what was Ephesus. And so you can see remnants of uh, Mary's church there, right? And Ephesus, this is right outside of Kusadasa, Turkey, uh, right outside of Selçuk between those two towns. And you can still see remnants um, that are now thousands of years old uh, where they worshipped. There's a humongous uh, baptismal uh, font. But here's the thing. You might think that it was really easy because, you know, it's all Christians and everybody's on the same page. No, no, no. When you go to the gift shop, even today, right down the street, uh, is the huge temple to Artemis. Now, uh, I'm a little uncomfortable saying this, but you see Artemis in the middle? What makes Artemis Artemis is that she has like 100 boobies. I mean, they're everywhere. Just, I mean, it's, it's all about sexuality and about fertility and about reproduction. And so it, it's, it's odd, you know, to go as a pastor and there's Jesus and then there's a hundred boobies. It's, all, you know, it's just all right there together. And, and, and it's still that way today. It can, it can almost be offensive if you're not careful about it. And this is the culture that Paul is writing to, that people that are trying to figure out what it is to have people in the world and all the sexuality around it and, and all of that along with the model of Christ. And, and if you just walk right down the road from there, uh, they're also trying to, you know, be hucksters. You know, I mean, see, Michael was like, you got to take that photo. These are genuine fake watches. I mean, they have no shame. They're like, there they are, genuine fake watches. I mean, they just call it out there. They don't even claim that they're real, right? And, and this is the culture of which Paul's writing into. Now, down, down the way, these are very wealthy people, 
Uh, and, and so this, you can actually see inside of homes, and these are mosaics that would have been on the floor. These are incredibly wealthy folk. And they had the whole world at their fingertips because this was a port city right off the Aegean Sea. Uh, the ships would come right up and come in and build these beautiful temples and houses and uh, libraries and places to meet. They had a big theater um, that you could see. Uh, and so here's the theater. You can still go to it today. You can walk right in uh, and, and be anywhere. And uh, they also complete with, you know, uh, you can go to the bathroom with 40 of your closest friends. Um, that this, is, this is a toilet or a bathhouse uh, at the time that Paul would have been writing. Uh, the latrines, uh, some of you have seen these before in other areas of the world. Uh, they're, they're tilted, and so, you know, potty number one is at the top, and it all flows down. You do not want to be at the end potty. That's all I'm saying. Um, but you just, you know, that's, that's how, it, how it was. So it's a very diverse cultural milieu of which all of this is happening. It's not, it's not like, you know, a, a neat little gated community uh, in Edmond at all. And so if you go to the theater, um, it looks like this from the, from the top row uh, and a different view as you look down onto it. Uh, to the right, you can see this long road uh, that's going to lead down to the harbor. And, and this, is, this was really interesting. Um, if, you, if you could see... Um, you'll see a photographer there. And then there's two girls probably in their late teens, early 20s in very sexy outfits. Um, and, and they're doing some sort of photo shoot. So it's, it's really just a very odd thing where you have uh, people going to the Artemis area. You've got people going to uh, the library. You have cruise ships coming in. And, and people just doing all sorts of different things all at the same time. And then if you were to go to the edge of the theater and you look down, um, back in Paul's day, that's where the ship would come in. And, and all the trade and all of that and, and all of humanity would happen all right here as they come up Harbor Road. Today, um, there's more than 10 miles between there and the actual sea. It's just filled in over the thousands of years uh, of silt and you know, just, it's just a different day. Uh, but back in Paul's day, uh, you'd basically have a ship at the end of that road and, and all of that would happen. And so it was, a, it was a very cosmopolitan kind of place. And it's this context that Paul is writing into. And the problem that Paul and the people had there, the same problem that we have today, and that's this, that people are people. And that is that we want grace for ourselves, but we struggle to extend it to others. Isn't that true? Just read, read this with me. We want grace for ourselves, but struggle to extend it to others. You know, we, we want to be forgiven. We want people to understand what we're going through, but we have a difficult time extending that to other people. Now, what do I mean by this? It happens to me all the time. Now, I'm, I'm trying to get better at this, but many of you all know I live in Homestead, and uh, when I'm trying to get around town, oftentimes I have to make a left turn uh, over four lanes of traffic out of my neighborhood. Some of you all do the same thing. And I, I don't know if this ever happened to you. Imagine yourself in your car, you're driving, and you need to turn left across the two, and then the next one, and then you know, you're out around. You got it? And you look right, nobody's coming. And you look left, and there's a car in the closest lane to you, um, and you're not exactly sure how fast it's coming, but it doesn't have its blinker on, it's coming at you, and so you wait. And look right, nobody's coming. You look left, still nobody except that one car. It's a little closer, still no blinker, so you're waiting. Look to the right, still no cars. Look back, it's right on you. And, and you know you're waiting, you look back right, and they turn right by you. No blinker. How do you feel about that? I mean, it is on. Now, I'm in the church vehicle, so I'm like, hey, God bless you. 
right? Or how, however it might be. But you, you know, there's this thing. And so you're like, oh my gosh. And if you're not careful, you can get this, you can get a good mat on like the people these days. Blinkers have been around for 50 years. You got to learn how to use it. You know, I'm sitting here waiting, right? And then next thing you know, you're just like, oh, it's on. And then in the exact same day, within two hours, I can be coming from the church and I've been at Disciple Bible Study, or I've been uh, here with you all, or we've been in a meeting, and I've been blessed, and things are great, and, you know, I got a raise, or I, I didn't, but I might, you know, you know, these sorts of things. I mean, it'd be just, a, you know, you have these days, and, and you kiss some babies that have been born, and everything's great, and people are getting married, and, and you just, and I'm just, your favorite song comes on the radio, and I'm just driving, the sun sets, and it's so pretty, I've taken Instagram, so show you all, you know, and I'm, I'm coming home. And I'm not thinking, and then Chantel calls me, and I'm like, oh, hey, honey. She's like, I've got dinner on the table, and the dog is clean, and John Mark and Noah have all made straight A's. I'm like, oh, this is so great. And I look up, and I'm almost about to miss the turn. And so I turn in, never used my blinker, at the exact same location that I had just freaked out about three hours earlier. And you know what? Somebody's sitting there waiting on me, and they're like, <laughs> and I think, well, they need to get a life. I'm offended that, you know, they would be offended. You see how this works? The exact same scenario at the exact same place in the exact same... And, and one, one I I'm, I'm cannot believe that someone would act like that and a few hours later I'm acting exactly like that. And I would expect them to show me some grace because, you know, all these wonderful things are going on. Or maybe the person was having a bad day or maybe they were crying or maybe they just found out they were getting a divorce or they got bad news at the hospital. Maybe they were distracted. But we don't know any of that, do we? We just know that somehow our own little world has been thwarted. Back in 2009, I had the great honor and privilege of studying under Dallas Willard, and he said a few things about anger that I'd never heard before, but I think he's exactly right. He said, first of all, friends, particularly in our culture, anger is the most fundamental problem in human life. There's nothing worse. There's nothing that destroys the fabric of our lives more than anger. All you have to do is look at the Middle East. You, you look at the way generation after generation after generation after generation, if you uh, go eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, you get a bunch of blind, toothless people um, who hate and kill each other. That's what you get. And it's been going on for a thousand years, plus. And, and you, you wipe out one set of terrorists, and as you kill them, their children watch you kill their fathers and their mothers and their brothers and their sisters, and they can't wait till the day they grow up to kill you. That's how it works. That's how it works. Anger is the most fundamental problem in human life. And then, as Christians, if you're on the right side of history, we love that phrase, don't we? Well, I'm gonna, you're going to say, I'm going to be on the right side of history, right? And so then you can be righteous, because then you get to be better than someone else who's not as smart as you are, or isn't as well-read as you are, or doesn't know the facts like you do. And so you have this righteous anger, right? Because you're on the right side of whatever history you think you're on. And then Dallas says this, he says, you know what? All anger thinks itself righteous at the time. He's exactly right. He's exactly right. All anger thinks itself righteous at the time. He says, actually, if there is such a thing as righteous anger, I have never seen it. And he said that in his 80s. And I thought, now he's seen a lot. He was a Baptist ordained minister uh, teaching philosophy at USC. So uh, he's probably seen a few things, a few clashes. And if there is such a thing as righteous anger, he would have known it. He said he's never seen it and that all anger thinks itself righteous at the time. And then he said this, and I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And I think he's right. He says, anything you can do with anger, you can do better without it. And think about that. I, it used to drive me crazy. I, I wrestled for six years when I was younger. And, and these coaches, 
I would love and hate it when this would happen. That I would go up against uh, another guy, and, and he would, uh, you know, sometimes I would win, sometimes I'd be behind. And then his coach would do this. He was like, get mad, get mad. You just need to get mad, you know, get mad and do that. And, and, and something always happened within me when I saw that happening because I thought to myself, well, this is going to be unpleasant because that kid's going to come out all mad. Uh, but then I would always kind of smile to myself and say, and I'm going to whoop him because when you get mad, you can't think straight. And all I have to do is wait till he makes some bonehead moon and pin him. Because when, when you wrestle a guy that's just all mad, you're going to win if you know what you're doing. Because you just have to let it play out until they make a mistake in their foolishness of flailing around and getting all mad. You see, anything you can do with anger, you can do better without it. And, and one of the things that, um, that I, I found uh, really interesting and wonderful is, and, and if you haven't done this, I, I recommend it to you. Uh, I went on a ride-along uh, with an Edmund police officer, Josh Smith, of our church. I've done this a couple of times. And one of the things that we know, I, Josh is going to get me for using that photo off of Google, but uh, it was awesome. Um, Josh is fantastic. And one of the things that, that you want to know about Josh, he's the nicest guy you'd ever meet. He's so cool, calm, and collected. And that's what you want in a police officer. We have other officers in our church, guys like Greg Presley. Again, super kind, gentle, thoughtful, uh, not ruffled. And the thing is, you don't want police officers that get angry and fly off the handle, do you? No. They're carrying weapons and tasers and, and they have all kinds of authority. You need Josh to be calm, cool, and collected. If you get pulled over, you don't want him flying off the handle at you. You don't want him having a bad day. You need him having a good day every day. Our soldiers and our police officers, you need them to be able to handle anger well and to let it go. I have great, I've always had great appreciation for our police officers, um, but if you'll do a ride along, you'll even have more. Uh, because on the night that I rode with Josh, it was about two in the morning uh, when we, we pulled over uh, a lady. And uh, as we did, uh, there were about five drunk ladies all got out of the car. And uh, they were all screaming and yelling, pulling each other's hair and saying, I told you not to drive and you're so, and then, you know, all the, all the words that we don't say at church, I heard all those and, and all that happened. And it just turned out that, of course, this lady had to go to jail because she wasn't safe. She was a DUI and she had to go. Now, if you haven't ever seen a sober person have to deal with a drunk person being arrested and put in, in, in the tank, uh, then you just haven't lived. Let's just say she was not happy about her arrest. And she was not convinced that she was drunk. She was not convinced that she should, was not able. She was a good driver. You know, she'd been driving a long time. And um, I'm pretty sure that in the next 45 minutes, uh, she called Josh every bad word in the book, uh, uh, assaulted him, uh, threw up on him, um, and then just continued to be horrible the entire time. Uh, screaming at him, throwing fits, trying to pull his hair, you know, just all these things. He tried to be as gentle as he could uh, with the handcuffs and tried to be, you know, ma'am, you know, we have to, I mean, whew. You, you, see, you see how none of this is possible with anger? You, you can't do that with anger. You have to have something greater. You have to have a power beyond that in order for the world to work right. So as, as your action step, I know I normally hold these at the end, but it's too good. Go on a ride along. Go and pray for our officers. Give thanks to God for our police and for our soldiers. They do an incredible job for us, but friends, they do it best without anger.
And in the times that we see it go badly, what happens? It's when anger gets them. When they just couldn't take one more day of, you know, crazy Sally coming at them at two in the morning. I mean, it's understandable. I mean, it's not, it's not acceptable. But if you live in their shoes, you, you understand. Um, it's a very difficult thing that they do on our behalf, day after day and night after night after night. And, and so we look at the life of Jesus. And what do we learn there? Well, Jesus encountered one moral mess after another. I mean, if you look at the people that Jesus ran with, they were all a wreck. They, they were messed up from top to bottom, and yet he chose to love them anyway. Two in particular that we know about in the Bible are Matthew and Zacchaeus, both tax collectors. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? You know, they collect taxes. Well, <laughs> it worked like this. I mean, imagine. The Roman government goes and says, hey, we're an occupying force. We need money from these people uh, but it's going to be horrible if we have to go extract it ourselves uh, as Roman soldiers. So who can we contract with uh, to get that money for us? Well, there were some businessmen uh, that lived in the area. And if you had enough money, you could buy the contract from the Roman government. And so Rome would say, I need $10,000, for example, or $100,000 or whatever it was from this region. And if you were a good businessman, you'd say, okay, I'll buy that contract. And all you had to do was get Rome that $100,000. It didn't matter how much you collected. If you collected short, you had to eat it. If you collected over, it was all gravy. Now imagine that you grew up in a town and it was your job basically to shake down everybody else you'd ever known. And you were free to do it as long as you wanted, as good as you could do it. And people knew when you walked in that they were getting a bad deal because these guys were rich. They had all the town's money and they got to do it you know, for, basically for free, carte blanche, because Rome was happy to get the money. As long as they got their cut, Tax collectors could take as much from you as they could get away with, and they did. And Jesus works with these people. Matthew becomes one of his disciples, and Zacchaeus is so taken with the love and grace of Jesus that he pays back everybody that he'd taken from fourfold. Four times he was such a changed man by the life of Jesus. You see, Jesus wasn't offended. He doesn't look at Zacchaeus and go, oh my, I could never go to your house. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to go to your house tonight. Let's talk. Let's talk about, you know, what you do, how you do it, what, what really is. And, of course, when um, he comes to Matthew, they have a big party, and, and they celebrate, and all the church people are like, hey, Jesus can't be a good guy because he's hanging out with Matthew and all of those, those people. This week, Chantel um, sent me um, an article that I thought was really good by Elizabeth Gilbert. And Chantel's my wife. And she says this, uh, Elizabeth Gilbert does. She says, Dear ones, a wise friend of mine recently reminded me of this deep and powerful truth about how to have a more peaceful life. Anybody here want a more peaceful life? Just, just more peace. She said, there are three kinds of business. You know what they are? Yours, mine, and God's. Three kinds of business. And the minute I start interfering with your business or trying to question God's business, I have overstepped my bounds. It's taken me years to learn how to back off from my passionate and burning desire to be absolutely certain about how other people should be living their lives. She writes this, amazing, isn't it? How certain we can be about other people's lives when our own lives are often so confusing and blurry and jittery. Same goes for my instinct to offer people advice to people who have not asked for it. I'm also slowly learning that to have an opinion about somebody else's life is to plant the seeds of future suffering. Hear that, friends. 
To have an opinion about someone else's life is to plant the seeds of future suffering because that person will very likely not live their life according to your vision or your plan, which will either cause tension between you or make you boil over in secret anger about them. And who needs that? Doesn't it just get under your skin with the people when you know exactly what they should do and they don't do it? The problem is that you don't get invited to their party. And you're out and alone and miserable. And who needs that? So she writes, I say it to myself all the time now. If you love somebody, Liz, just love them. And then stay out of it. That's good advice. If you love somebody, just love them. And then stay out of it. A neighbor of mine used to wear a t-shirt that said, Dear Lord, please keep one hand on my shoulder and the other over my mouth. She says it's hard to find a better prayer than that. Your business. My business. God's business. The better I can keep that straight, the gentler, more peaceful my life becomes. So writes Elizabeth Gilbert. I think she's right. I think she's absolutely right. So here's the thing, friends, and I want you to know this. You can choose to be unoffendable. You know that? You have a choice about it. You don't have to be. Now, you may be so used to it that you don't know how else to live. I'll give you that. That happens. But you can choose to be unoffendable. So I, I want, I, this is great news for you, friends. Get ready for peace and joy and love if you choose to be unoffendable. So I want you to read it with me. Say, I can choose to be unoffendable. Ready? Can you do it? Come on, be brave. One, two, three. I can choose to be unoffendable. You can. You can. And I've seen it. I've seen it. It's so beautiful. You see, love covers a multitude of offenses. It's love that does it. Love covers the offense. Bryant Hansen, in his book, where I'm bringing this sermon from, um, says this. Forfeiting our right to anger makes us deny ourselves and makes us other-centered. If you're a tweeter, um, I invite you to tweet that out. Because when you choose not to be offended, then it's no longer about you. You can actually concentrate on, on loving other people. I saw this um, with a good friend of mine a few years back. We went to dinner. I'd never seen this happen. I'd seen smaller things happen like this, but never this. We went to dinner, and Chantel and I sat down with our two boys, and, and my good friend and his wife and their son, they sat down, and uh, we were at a, a well-known restaurant here in, in town. It's a big deal. It was nice and that whole thing. And the waitress, I, I think, had been on the job maybe three days or so, and, and he was drinking water, had a big, nice thing of water, and she went to fill up his glass, and she missed the whole thing, lost the whole pitcher, and all of it went on him. All of it, the whole thing, just whoosh. And then you have that moment where all of us at the table are looking at him like, oh, like what happens? Now, this guy that was a millionaire, had millions of dollars. I mean, no kidding. And, and there was this thing where, you know, you kind of wonder like about the person's character. Like, how did they get there? How did they make their money? How ruthless are they? And he just got up, brushed himself off, told her it was no big deal, it was fine. And we just put it, I mean, the most gracious thing I had ever seen in my life, completely unoffendable, and then gave her a huge tip at the end of the night. Out of grace. Now that's what being unoffendable looks like. It was no big deal to him. He had been wet before, he would be wet again. No big deal. But he treated other people with grace. When you see someone choose to be unoffendable right in front of your eyes, it's the most beautiful thing. It's so beautiful. You see, your life will become less stressful, 
less angry when you give up your right to anger and offense. It's just the way it is. Now, you might be wondering about real injustice, though. I mean, okay, not water, not turn lanes, not this, not that. You know, what, what about really bad stuff? Shouldn't we be angry at those people who do really bad stuff? No. No. Because we can't handle it. Because our anger makes us stupid. And we're not able to respond in ways that are helpful in the moment, in that situation with anger. You know as well as I do, if you have a sibling, if you ever pay, uh, have had gotten somebody punch you in the shoulder and then you punch them back, the second punch is always harder. And then they punch you back the third time, then it's on. Right? I mean, that's how it works if you've got a brother or sister. Uh, you know, when you're trading punches, the last punch is always the hardest. Now, we may feel angry, and that's natural, but it's not helpful. So when that anger comes, we need to get rid of it as fast as we can because it damages us. It gives us heart disease gastrointestinal problems, blood pressure issues, acid reflux. All this comes out of anger and anxiety. And so we need to look at at real leaders like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. When we recognize injustice, yes, we grieve it. Yes, we respond to it. We act against it. But without rage, without anger, without malice, only love can overcome hate. Only light overcomes darkness. More hate, more anger, more wrath, more malice only makes it worse, makes us worse, makes us part of the problem. Less human, more exhausted. Haven't you all ever just been mad all day long and just been exhausted? You didn't have any energy to do anything because you've just been mad at somebody all day. Can't even think straight. Can't even get your work done. Can't even do the things you know you need to do. You know something that was really interesting to me? I've never met a peaceful, angry person. Have you? Ever in your life? He said, oh, I just love them. They're so angry all the time. It's just great. To follow Jesus is to forgive others from the cross. To show grace in moments of real pain. Real pain. I'm not saying the pain's not real. Of course it is. But to follow Jesus is certainly to overlook an offense. We defend the defenseless. Yes, we protect the vulnerable. Yes, but we do it without needing anger. We do it with the real power of prayer, the real strong stance of peace. And when Jesus says from the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. The question for us is, is that same Jesus that lives in us saying the same thing out of us? Is his voice speaking through you? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Because here's the other harsh reality, and that is we don't know what's going on with other people. We don't know. We don't know. That's the reality of it. You might guess, you might think, you, you, you might have a really bad past so you just assume, but you don't know. Only God knows. God knows other people's private motives. We don't. God knows other people's private lives. We don't. Only God knows what's in their mind, and that means that God alone can judge. So when we think we can judge others' motives, we're wrong. We're just wrong about that. You can't do it because you're not them. We're not them. People are foolish. And psychological studies have shown that when there are two sides to a story and there are always two sides of the story, do you know which one you think is going to be right? Absolutely proven. The first one you hear. Right? If you don't know what's going on, that's why people rush to get out in front of a story because people just assume the first one's right until they have enough facts to change their mind. That's just human nature. So if we're really going to be honest about this, we have to leave the judging up to the only one who can do it rightly and justly, and that's God. Because only God has the perfect character to handle anger. 
We simply don't have the ability to do it. Only God has the perfect character to handle anger. Will you say that with me? Only God has the perfect character to handle anger because God is just. So only God can handle anger. And this has been true for thousands and thousands of years. If you go all the way back to the wisdom literature of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes in the third century BC before Jesus, it teaches us this, that anger lodges in the bosom of what? Fools. Anger isn't where the smart folks are hanging out. This is the location of fools. Ecclesiastes 7, 16, and 20 says this. Do not be quick to what? Anger. And do not act too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? See, wisdom has known this a long, long time. And, and then in verse 20. Surely there is no one on earth so righteous as to do good without ever sinning. So those days, I mean, you can even have two or three good days in a row, but ultimately, you're going to fall too. And when you do, whoever you've judged harshly is waiting. Whoever you've been critical about, they're waiting, they're watching. All those times you've been on your kids about this, 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 and this. Just wait until you're in that home. (laughs) And then they'll tell you. Oh, Dad, you didn't take out the trash. You should do that. Yeah. See? Proverbs fourteen seventeen says this. One who is quick-tempered acts how? Foolishly. Foolishly. You know, I've never heard anybody say to me, you know, Pastor Mark, I just flew off the handle the other day at my wife. It ended great. I never hear that. Matter of fact, Jesus says it like this. He says, do not what, friends? Why? Why not? Because you're going to be judged. And he goes on in the Sermon on the Mount to say this. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. Now, friends, we've got to hear this. I find Christians absolutely forget this. They completely dismiss it out of hand. He says, no, no, no. The measure you give, the measure you judge with will be the measure you get. Absolutely true. And then we're not talking about salvation, right? Because some people think, oh, well, I'm safe, so that doesn't apply to me. No, it applies to you. It applies to all of us. Yes, we're in relationship with Jesus, but we have to forgive in the same way that he forgave. Or it's coming right back at us. You don't get a free pass around this. This is Jesus telling us the way it is, the way it really, really is. And in case we missed it, his brother James reminds us, he says, you must understand this, my beloved, my beloved, one he loves. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to what? Anger. For your anger does not produce God's righteousness. It just doesn't. It doesn't have that power. Peace and forgiveness and love, that's where the real power comes from us. And and here's the truth of the matter, friend. Most of us, we only get a few chances at really forgiving. Because most of the stuff's just silly. And it just goes on. I mean, we don't really even need to talk about it. But but by the time you get to my age, there's two or three things that happen in every person's life that you got to make a choice about about whether you're going to let it go or whether you're going to hold on to it and be miserable. It's real things. But God has come to set you free. You don't have to live that way anymore. So action step two is this. I want you to think about this. What are you currently offended about right now, today? And, and if it's that I'm preaching this sermon, just get over it. I mean, let's go deeper than that, shall we? Right? I'm offended that you're preaching on offendedness. Okay. Really, what, it, what is still sticking with you? 
Let me think about that. I want you to be free of it. Lay it down tonight. Leave it at the altar when you come to communion. Ask Jesus to help you with that so you can be free. So you can really be free. Brant Hansen, who wrote the book that I've been reading that I recommend to you called Unoffendable, he says this, and I think he's exactly right. He says, the thing that you think makes your anger righteous is the very thing you're called to forgive. Because if it wasn't righteous, you wouldn't have to forgive it. It'd just be silly. The fact that, you, that it's righteous, that there really is something there, is the point that you have to forgive it, that you have to let it go, which I would remind you in Hebrew is simply to untie, to allow yourself to be free from it. You're not saying it was okay. You're not saying that it was right. You're not saying that you accept it. You're just saying, I'm not going to live my life in response to that anymore. I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to be angry anymore. I'm going to have a new life in Christ. Because as he forgave me, in that power I'm going to forgive others. So Paul writes in his corollary to the church in Ephesus to Colossae, he says this, but now, this is what you've got to get rid of, friends. If you want life that really is life, you want life of peace, you have to get rid of this anger wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language because it's killing us as a people, as a culture, as a country. Because when you get rid of that, guess what? You're unoffendable and it's beautiful. And I recommend it to you in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.